Hello from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast, a podcast that connects college and university students with AEI scholars to discuss pressing issues facing our country and world. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I'm thrilled to bring you this preview of the midterm elections between AEI's Jonah Goldberg and Executive Council student Isaac Willauer. Before I turn it over to Isaac, I want to let you know that AEI's Executive Council program gives students the opportunity to engage with AEI scholars through conversations like this one and to lift up the quality of public policy dialogue on campuses throughout the country. If you want to learn more or join us in this effort, check out the link in our show notes and be sure to follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating to help others find the show. Enjoy the conversation. All right. Thanks, Jeff. My name is Isaac Willauer, and I'm a junior at Grove City College studying political science. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Mr. Jonah Goldberg. Goldberg is the Asinus Chair on Applied Liberty at AEI, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, and is the editor-in-chief of The Dispatch, where I was privileged to serve as an intern over this past summer. Jonah, thanks for joining me. It's great to be here. It's great. So let's let's talk midterms. So a lot of analysts are noting that instead of being composed of a single blue or red wave, th- this midterm season seems to consist of a lot of smaller waves moving in both directions, making it much more difficult to identify uh, a general trend. Is this surprising? Surprising is, is not the word I would use. Um, it's a little abnormal, and I think it's because we have an abnormal situation. So, look, I, I think it's since 1862, it's like since the Civil War, there have only been three midterm elections for a f- during a first term of a first you know, of a, of a presidency that didn't go for the out party. Um, normally, the first midterms of a presidency are there are a referendum right on the on the incumbent party, particularly if the incumbent party owns uh, runs all three branches of government. Sure. And one of the reasons why it works so well as a referendum is because the party out of power gets to be a backseat driver. They get to say we didn't have anything to do with any of this. They get to be all things to all people. They get to say, if we were in charge, if we were driving, we'd be going in a different direction. They get to agree with the stuff that they think is good, and they get to disagree with the stuff that people think is bad, and they can just they can they can have fun with it, um, in effect. And the problem that the Republicans have run into is that um, you've had basically two major things happen. One was the Supreme Court overruling uh, Roe v. Wade. And um, and the subsequent response to that, where so you have a bunch of Republican appointed, three of them by a, the controversial last president, Republican appointed justices who overturned this, what a lot of people thought was settled law. And then a whole bunch of Republican controlled legislatures start doing all sorts of very aggressive, controversial, whatever stuff on abortion and. All of a sudden, it just doesn't feel like Republicans are out of power in the way that they normally would feel, right? Um, and then the other part of it is is that it is essentially unprecedented, at least for the last century, to have um, a defeated uh, former president just stay in the headspace of his own party and the country the way Trump has. For and sure. the, the Mar the Lago incident and all the related things have been very sort of been, have been pretty good for Trump vis-a-vis the Republican base, but pretty terrible for the Republican Party vis-a-vis the rest of the country, because it reminds a whole bunch of people 
oh, this is how it felt when when this guy was the president of the United States. And it sure makes it feel like he's sort of president because he's talking about his executive privilege and all that. So those two things, I think, really muddied the waters for um, uh, the normal, clean narrative of a first midterm. And also just, you know, overturning Roe, which I was in favor of. That activates the Democratic base in ways that normally, you know, normally the people who stay home are people your or Democrats your age who just was like, eh, midterms. And now all of a sudden they feel there's more of a threat to them or at least large numbers of them. The question is, where do those voters live? You know, a lot of them are in blue states and a big turnout of young, very liberal voters who normally don't vote in midterms in New York and Massachusetts is not going to change very much in terms of the overall map. So that's why there are a bunch of regional issues and counterintuitive things that make it a bunch of different sort of vibe shifts and, and not a unifying theme, which is what the Republicans are desperate to have, but have really screwed up trying to keep. Yeah. And that's a really good point. Yeah. Because of these, these cultural issues, it's actually worth for young voters, the Herculean effort of, Registering to vote, which is for most people, four clicks in a Google search. But right, right, it's a, it's know, a burden. It's a burden. of course, yeah, it is. It is our burden. You know, we are like Atlas carrying the world. Um, let's move on to Trump's influence really quickly. So, what are mm-hmm. what are three? Let's say three races that will tell us the most about how much influence Trump still holds over the party. Well, Utah, you know, the Utah Senate race against Mike Lee. Uh, it's not so much because Mike Lee is such a legendarily pro-Trump guy, although he's become much Trumpier since 2016, to be sure. sure. Um, It's that his opponent, Evan McMullen, the independent who's got the Democratic endorsement, is was literally ran for president against Donald Trump in um, in 2016 and is sort of one of the leading never Trumper, anti Trumper types um, uh, that I think um, the fact that Mike Lee last night asked, basically publicly begged Mitt Romney to endorse him, and Mitt Romney's <laughs> refusing to endorse, is a big deal. For sure. Um, it's also very got to be really hard for Lee, since Lee refused to endorse Romney in 2018. Um, and, it, and Lee refused to endorse, I believe, uh, Orrin Hatch in, in 2012. Yeah. So the idea that somehow he's got to go hat in hand uh, to Mitt Romney is probably problematic. Um, but I think that's a good sign about the the uh, the control of Trump. Um, on the flip side, you could say you know the Georgia's Georgia governor's race shows you the limits of Trump's influence because you have Brian Kemp, who you know Trump desperately tried to knock off in the primaries, who he's demonized um, as you know being part of the cover up and the stolen election and all that kind of stuff is probably going to sail to victory over Stacey Abrams, um, despite Trump hating his guts. Um, and it's Herschel Walker who they're going to have to, if they, if they can get him to the victory, they're, they're going to have to drag him across the finish line, even though he was Trump's hand-picked candidate. So it's, it's, it's complicated. It's always been the case that Trump's control over the G- – Trump's superpower within the GOP has always been as part of the primary process – he, he has the ability to kill people in primaries. He is of limited utility in general elections, particularly when he is not on the ballot. Um, and I think that what we'll see on Election Day, regardless of whether Republicans take back the Senate, 
I think they will take back the house is 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 proof of that, that he is sort of a net. He's a net drag in general election contests in all but the reddest of red states. And um, but he is a huge uh, kingmaker in the primary process. Yeah, that's great. So let's, let's talk about those general elections, because one, one of the common criticisms of the Republican Party right now is that they've just aligned themselves with simply put terrible candidates. Right. Herschel Walker. Never Oz. We can make jokes about Herschel Walker, but I mean, if you want to, it's, you know, um, <laughs> if the party had picked better candidates, would this have been a better season or was this just an inevitable breakdown of the party in, in oh. general terms? It's, I, I think it is absolutely indisputable that if you had let Mitch McConnell, if you, Isaac, yeah. had personally let Mitch McConnell do what he wanted yeah. to do, everything it's my burden of Google searching and voting. Yes. If I had done that, yeah. Um, no, look, I mean, look, I, I, I no longer have a huge investment in the success of the, the, the GOP. I'm increasingly a sort of Henry Kissinger on the Iran Iraq war kind of guy. It's a pity they both can't lose, but, um, yeah. I have a great amount of sympathy for Mitch McConnell in a way that drives a lot of my right wing and left wing <laughs> friends crazy in the yeah. sense that Mitch McConnell is a. Is a normal politician from a bygone era. He's an institutionalist. He never wanted to be president. He just wants to be the longest serving Senate majority leader in Senate history. He, a Crucial to that strategy or that ambition is to have Republicans get elected to the Senate. And for over a decade now, when anybody has ever asked his opinion, he said, let's not have crazy people run as Republicans. And he said that basically in 2020. He said that basically in 2022. Um, he's said over and over again that candidate quality is the big drag. You could have had an absolutely generic Republican, some Republican who had worked his way up from dog catcher to assistant treasurer to this, to that, to the other. Boring mayo on white bread GOP country club or kind of guy. And he would have run away beating Raphael Warnock in, in Georgia. Uh, Brian Bolduck, the, uh, you know, part of, and look, I mean, I think all these people, a lot of these people are just straight up nuts and they're peddling in conspiracy theories and nonsense. But even, even to the extent some aren't, or if you think that there are defenses of some of these people, most of them are rookies. Yeah. Most of them haven't run for public office before. And McConnell's approach is let's people, let's pick people who know how to run for office. Let's pick people who the opposition researchers have already looked at um, and find qualified candidates who know the job and know how to add a campaign. And the partly because the base was really into sort of hot headed populism and partly because Trump picked, you know, uh, because he has this power in the primaries, picked a bunch of novice candidates from Arizona to, to New Hampshire to Ohio. Um, because he liked the idea of owning them should they actually win. And and the, the key dynamic in all of this is that Trump would rather be, you know, what's the line from Milton? Better to rule on yeah. hell than serve rule, in heaven. He would rather be the most powerful person in a shrunken minority party GOP than be just one voice of many in a majority party GOP. Yeah, and it's a grievance thing. I think I think it was Steyerwald who said that it's it's um neither party really wants to be the party in power. They just want to be the one pointing out how everyone else is screwing up. That's a, that's a really good point. So Thank moving you. on from criticisms of the Republican Party, although that there are there are many and we could probably do a three hour Joe Rogan style podcast enumerating all of them. What's the biggest issue that Democrats are facing in the midterms? How much is Biden's behavior as president to 
how, how much is that to how much does that account for some of this and how much of it is simply that normal outgroup trend? Yeah. So, I mean, this is why if you talk to a lot of smart Republicans, uh, they really wish the election were held about 11 months ago. Yeah. Because uh, inflation was rearing up. Crime was coming up. Uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a disaster. Biden seemed really out of it, in part because I think he's often really out of it. And um, uh, and unfortunately, the Geo- I mean, again, I th- again, I think the GOP is going to do f- relatively fine in these midterms. I think they'll take the House. It's a fifty-one forty-nine proposition yeah. whether they take the Senate. So that's not a disaster. But it, there was a time when. People talked about red tsunami instead yeah. of red wave. It and it wasn't one stupid. America red tsunami thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was. And, and now it's sort of ridiculous. But like at the time, it made some sense, you know, pre Dobbs and all that. So inflation is really, really bad. Um, inflation. And I don't mean like the current inflation is really, really bad, though it is. I mean that inflation is one of these things that is among the most immune to uh, political rhetoric of almost any national problem. And it is a problem that, you know, even crime isn't felt nearly to the degree that inflation is. And some evil genius 75 years ago came up with the idea of putting uh, stores in every neighborhood in the country that basically advertise the state of inflation when you drive past them, they're called gas stations. Every gas station has these signs. People notice them. People remember them. People see them on a daily basis. They keep track of them. And so inflation is just brutal for incumbent politicians. And when the, and then you get into the larger problem, you know, the crime stuff is real. It may be exaggerated places. The border stuff is real. It may be exaggerated in places, but there's this general sense that the country is kind of spiraling out of control. And, Biden is not a reassuring presence yeah. on that. And uh, I'm not trying to pick on him because he's old and all that kind of stuff. I didn't think he was a reassuring presence 40 years ago. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, there's been a well-established finding in the social science literature that says at any given moment, Joe Biden might just start saying, get these squirrels off of me. Um, he has been uh, saying strange things for a very long, my entire adult life. So I think that's a big part. Uh, the, the The fundamentals should be against the Democrats in a big way. It's just the Republicans keep stepping on their own messaging. Um, I also think that the Democratic Party, much like the Republican Party, uh, they're both caught up in their very online bubbles. They yeah. think that their biggest Twitter fans represent the real world. Um, I think this is a problem for the Biden administration in a big way because they take their cues. They often seem to be acting as if uh, if they get approval from Nicole Wallace on MSNBC, oh yeah, that means they're they're governing right, and that's nuts. And um, and I think so. I think that that's the Democratic Party has real big problems. Both parties have really big problems. Um, and I'm still of the mind that says, by the time you're my age, one of these parties won't exist anymore. For sure. So just really quickly to follow up on that, let's say we have a magic wand. We make you, you know. The, the, the chief democratic strategist and you have the ability to change one thing that the parties do that the democratic party is doing on the messaging front what do you do what do you change oh i think it'd be very easy i don't think it'd have to be the democratic party it would just have to be joe biden joe yeah. biden needs to do 
because you're smart and educated young man, you, you, you've heard of sister soldier moments, but basically it's harkens back to something Bill Clinton did um, as he was leading up to run in 1992. And, and the gist of it is, is that what you have to do is you have to pick a, you have to pick a fight with your own side that communicates to the center. You're not own owned by the mm-hmm. base of your own party. And it seems to me that Biden going, you know, like, I know you said he didn't support defund the police and all that kind of stuff, but there is almost on a daily basis, particularly during the primary season, where Biden was basically given these opportunities to throw some local crazy left wing public official (laughs) under the bus and say, this is not what the Democratic Party stands for. Or he could if he doesn't want to do a sister soldier thing where he attacks someone on the base of the party, he could defend somebody who the base of the party hates those little gestures just mean a lot in politics. And, but Biden, contrary to his best press, Biden has never been a centrist. Biden was a centrist within the democratic party. And so he always split the difference between conservatives and liberals in the party. Yeah. The party no longer has very many conservative Democrats in it. So that's moved him way to the left of the party. And he's a people pleaser. And I think that that's the problem. If, if he had more Sam Nunn's and Joe Manchin's and those kinds of people in the Democratic Party, he would split the difference between them. But instead, he the only people he hears from are well to the left. And this is proven in polling and, and case studies. It's like the average White House staffer, the average member of Congress, Democratic member of Congress is well to the left of the median Democratic voter. And that is a huge problem for a party that claims to be reaching out to the majority of the American people. Yeah, it's true. Like you have candidates like John Fetterman who kind of personify that every man appeal, but most most Democratic candidates don't. Really quickly, let's, you've talked about political polarization a lot. You talk about it in Suicide of the West. You've talked talk about it when you write the Dispatch, and all of you listening should go subscribe to the Dispatch. Is there a chance that we see any increased party unity from either side after midterm season? Or does it just devolve into a you screwed it up and now we're going to punch you really hard type deal? Yeah, so I think I think the Democratic I've given party, up hoping for bipartisan unity. There's no chance anymore. Yeah, and I'm and and, and unity is overrated, but that's a conversation sure. for another day. But um, I suspect a lot depends on the Democratic side about whether or not Joe Biden actually runs for re-election mm-hmm. and whether or not he is any primary challengers. If he can get, uh, you know, if he can roid up a little bit and to get his vitamin B12 shots or whatever yeah. and seem more on top of things, I Go think. Outside in the sun a little bit, yeah. Yeah, you know, um, if he could persuade people that he's up for another run and scare away opponents, then I think the Democratic Party will probably unify around him for fear of. Uh, losing to Donald Trump or something like that, right? But it all depends, you know, will Gavin Newsom, will these people, you know, will there be primary challenges? And I, I just don't know the answer to that yet. It kind of, Some of that will depend on the midterms. Sure. On the Republican side, I just don't see how it's really possible if Trump runs mm-hmm. um, because there's going to be someone other than Liz Cheney who still runs for the nomination. And I think Trump, will argue that he shouldn't have to run in primaries. He will argue that he should basically be a favorite son. He will argue that he shouldn't have to debate. And there's just no way you're going to get a lot of unity around that. Yeah, and that's, yeah. and if he doesn't run, basically it's going to be like Caddy Day 
at the Bushwood Country Club and oh, the yeah. entire Republican Party is going to go running into the pool and we could have another 20 person you know raise because then everybody gets in if it's a if it's an open raise yeah it'll be great it'll be like that this this giant pool of people is that the audience no those are all the debaters and there's exactly. like three people who showed up on stage and that's the audience and it's just in this wonderful turnaround all right let's just quickly run through final question which we asked all of our guests what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college so I've, i struggle with this because i have i have i have many many answers some of which are not safe or family <laughs> oriented podcasting um you can tweet them out later we'll see them yeah i mean I, I think i think part of my answer is just simply young people it's something i i learned only shortly after i got out of college but like it's move this way it's advice i give to a lot of people your age which is that you don't have to be in too much of a hurry there is this tendency among a lot of the college kids, you know, interns at AI I run into when I go to, you know, elite campuses, there is this idea that like, if you are not sprinting towards some sort of career goal, you're falling behind. And it's just not true. The great thing about being young is you can afford to be poor. <laughs> and what I mean by that is you can be entrepreneurial with your time. If if I like I, when I got out of college, I went and um, I taught English in Prague for a little while and I wanted to be a starving writer and I didn't I sort of batted 500. I didn't starve and I didn't write. But um, it was one of the greatest things I ever did in my life. I had a, just a wonderful time doing it. And I understand not everybody could afford doing that. There's some people, you know, I, I get it. You know, I mean, I had to work when I was there. Yeah. But when you're when you're in your early 20s drinking cheap beer or ramen noodles or whatever, who cares? Um, you can go and you can do interesting things and there's really no such thing. I mean, if you're going to stay home playing Call of Duty in your basement, that's wasting time. But if you go take a job that you think might be interesting or take you to an interesting part of the world you may never go to again, that's not wasted time. That's stuff that you will be, uh, you'll be hard-pressed to do later. If I wanted to go and teach English in Prague now, I would lose a couple yeah. jobs. I would lose a house. I would lose a wife. Um, I can't afford it. Like my life owns me more than I yeah. own my life at this age. But when you're in your twenties, you can learn something cool and experience something cool. And even if it turns out to be a job, one of the, four, one of the first jobs I had was as a television producer, loved it for a couple of years and then decided I didn't want to do it for the rest of my life. I don't consider it to be wasted time at all because I, th I, I now know that I didn't want to do that. And so I, I, having experienced the job that I thought I really wanted for a while, I now have the con I had the confidence to leave it. And sometimes you really don't know what you want and what you're right for until you try other things. And it's easier to do that in today's America than probably in any other time in American history. And so don't get caught up. Don't let other people define your sense of career progress. Figure out what you know, what's interests you and pursue your interests like a truffle pig, yeah, um, regardless of whether or not, you know, it gets you into grad school or whatever. There you go. And eventually you can arrive at the, uh, the pinnacle of human existence, which is, you know, anthropomorphizing your pets on Twitter and, you know, writing brilliant political commentary. Um, I do not out. anthropomorphize them. I, uh, well, I mean, you can make an art. I guess you could. <laughs> if, if you believe that human beings are the only sentient animals, sentient creatures 
and that uh, you cannot translate any other animal's state of mind into English, then I suppose I'm anthropomorphizing them. But That's a great way to end this. Jonah Goldberg, thank you so much for, for being on the Campus Exchange. Thanks for your time. Pleased to do it. Great to see you, man. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time. 